Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Jewish Divorce Project. I'm your host, Noam Rauscher. And I'm your host, Liron Tal. Join us as we kvetch and kvel about Judaism and divorce. From our perspective as two Jewish professionals and two divorce coaches. And two Jewish parents with lots of experience and plenty of opinions. Shalom, shalom, friends. Welcome to episode 70 of the Jewish Divorce Project. No, you have not reached movie phone. I'm just trying out the voice in this wonderful studio that we're in because I'm feeling awkward and nervous. And frankly, that was the only way that I could do it. And thinking about it, I just remembered. Mm-hmm. I just remembered, I mean, I consulted Rabbi Google. And Rabbi Google says that 70 is a significant number in the Jewish tradition. Not only was it 70 people total who originally went down to Egypt at the end of Genesis, right? Oh. Yeah, all okay. of Jacob's children, down to Egypt, 70 of them. But also, Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our sages, supposedly, 70 celebrates the fullness of life. Ooh. Fullness of life. I like that. I wonder what that means. I don't it really know. It means so many things. Like you've you get to 70 and you've had a full life. You've seen it all. Yeah, that's not a bad goal. Well, we've seen a lot on this podcast for 70 episodes, but there's a lot more to see, I'll tell you that. Yes. Right? But for now, I want to see, how was your weekend, Leroy? Did the universe speak to you at all? Yes, as always. Yeah? With <laughs> bells and chimes and eucalyptus trees. Um, I had a good weekend. Um, got to, it, was, it wasn't my kids, it wasn't my weekend with the kids, but I got to pick them up Saturday because we went to a bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. I actually had a really nice time. I haven't, been, I haven't been to synagogue since in the last month. Really? Just for lack of interest? I've just kind of stayed away from everything, in all honesty. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Just being, being at a bat mitzvah and watching her be so proud. Yeah. And um, I got emotional. It was... I'm Yisrael Chai type of emotional. Like, yeah. we must not let the terrorists win. This is yeah, what this is all about. Yeah, it was such a nice celebration. And, stuff, yeah. and yeah, yeah, that was really nice. You have to do that. You have to do those things. I may have mentioned it in an earlier conversation we had in a couple episodes past, but... Uh, Rabbi Ed Feinstein talks about, you know, it may feel really weird and almost seem sick, but like you have to carry on. You have to keep on living your life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Despite the, the horrors and the darkness of the world, you have to be the light that ends up doing it. Yep. Not easy. Not easy. Well, and I, in this specific um, family, there was m- more than half, like most of the people there weren't Jewish at all. Mm-hmm. But that was cool too. That was felt like special, even more special than I think in, in the past. Think about those times that um, those JCCs got attacked mm-hmm. right, um, by anti-Semites. And so interesting to see how JCCs have been primarily the places where non-Jews have also connected with the Jewish community because of all the cultural services and they offer in the community services and the mm-hmm. extracurricular activities and all that stuff. Yep. And yet, like, anti-Semites think, like, that's the place to attack Jews. In fact, like, they attack everyone there. Yeah, yeah. The sick and crazy world, and here we are back again to the darkness of it. Thanks for letting me go there, Liron, at the beginning of the episode. That's got to be a new well, record. I brought right? up a bat mitzvah, which was a celebration. So it is. Yeah. It is a really wonderful celebration. I'm actually. Uh, What'd you do this week? Yeah, we had uh, my youngest son's birthday, uh, so that was really lovely to celebrate. Watching him turn ten is just. Oh, a, a, yeah, it's a lovely milestone, um, and so that was a wonderful experience, and. You know, the bar mitzvah coming up, the invitations got sent out, and I'm, you know, like... Uh, that's it, no turning back. Uh, yeah, that's really what it is. I think that yeah. was some of my reluctance before, because it took me about a month to actually do this. Uh, like, I set it up, and I was had the guest list, and I was 
wrote all the text out and everything. And it just took me so long to actually send it because I think it was, now there's no turning back. The invitation makes it really real, despite like all my kids prepping everything and hearing it. The invitation makes it really real. And from an event planning standpoint, you sent it out at a good time. It would have been so? too early if you sent it earlier. Yes. I thought I was like three, four months out would have been reasonable. Well, do you have a lot of entertainers? I mean, they all know in advance. They all know. Though. They already they all know. know in advance. Yeah. yeah. That's family and everything. They're good. All right. That's good to know. I appreciate that. And it's, I mean, it feels good because my ex and I have found like a workable way of doing this. Um, you know, it's taken a lot of conversations and um, just patience as well on both of our parts, I think, for each other and uh, a lot of just kind of compassion too, because it's not like I, I'm getting, I get emotional about it on a regular basis. And so just like talking about it, even when it comes to like, well, catering or honors or suits and things like that ends up building up so much. Uh, like I was just, I was getting emotional thinking about it, just thinking about the speech and everything that I have to give. I don't know how I'm going to get through that. I really don't. Uh, so yeah, the things are, are, are working out, which is, feels really good. feels like I can breathe a little bit more easily. Yes. Yeah. I'm and excited speaking, to, to check in on the journey as we get closer. Yeah, we will. Don't worry. And speaking of celebrations and things like that, particularly when, you know, you need to have a real wonderful experience, it's important to have the right types of vendors around for that, right? Mm-hmm. 100%. Particularly caterers, since they make up so much of the experience. You know, you could go to a party and there could be nice table settings and there could be a good DJ and good music and nice lighting even and nice flowers. But, like, you don't have the right food. That really sets things off and people really talk about it. And so the experience provided through food is also really important. So I'm going to ask Nace um, some questions I have, primarily based on the bear, since I'm a little obsessed with that show. Uh, and, and maybe you can weigh in on it, Nace, if, if you'd like to. But uh, we're going to go to commercial break. When we come back, we're uh, back with our very, uh, well, this is wonderful, our, our newest guest, Nace Neubauer. The Jewish Divorce Project is proudly sponsored by Contemporary Catering. Contemporary Catering Events and Hospitality a full-service hospitality company with over 18 years of catering and event production experience. You can find out more at www.contemporarycatering.com. And we're back. Well, I am really excited about our guest. First of all, you were saying we, you haven't had very many male guests on the no, show in the haven't. past. No, we have So I'm very excited to be giving this mitzvah. Thank you for that, Nace. Thank you for a male guest. Yeah. Um, and um, I just want to say it's it's... Pretty crazy. So I've met Nace in the last what year? -ish, year and a half. Year and, a half. Um, and it's kind of crazy that we didn't meet before because we both have been in the Jewish community and have worked in the industry and in the event planning world. And um, but I met Nace because he is in a relationship with my best friend from childhood. And um, yeah, she's kick ass. So I was like, this guy must be kick ass. And um, you're here and you have experience and I, I've been able to be witness of their relationship and both have been married before, at least twice. So we want to hear this. I, we've talked about it, how the second time around, yeah. you know so much more, right. you've been through so much. So we are excited to hear your story of your experiences in divorce land and Kind of anything you'd like to share with us or feel comfortable sharing with us. I, I, this I want to add. This yeah. is a real treat, not only because you're a male guest, and we just have so many female guests. Not that that's a problem, but I think the diverse professional field is just heavily involving of women for any number of different reasons. I don't know why, but like 
just is, it's saturated with women. And, and so there are a few like male professionals and you're not a male divorce professional, but hearing a male's voice in divorce is also, I think, really important, not just for our listeners, um, but also because you're not a male, you're not a divorce professional, right? You're a guy like everyone else. You're an average guy like that. Regular old Joe. Yeah. I think I'm Jewish. Joseph. I got divorced, so therefore I qualify. There you go. That's exactly right. That's what it is. Thank you. Member of the tribe right here. I appreciate it. Baruch Hashem. Uh, it's wonderful to meet you, Nace. Pleasure. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, we also connected. Liron set us up in a conversation, and we were able to share some parts of our background. I think Camp Ramah is part of it, isn't it? Uh, many, many years ago. There you go. Okay. I spend uh, every summer up at Camp Ramah. Okay. Speaking of Rabbi Ed Feinstein, yeah. I remember when Rabbi was a camp director there with long hair, that's right. crazy camp director. Camp <laughs> oh my God, really? That's I recently awesome. heard that Craig Talman, I think, wrote the song, The Rebbe Needs a Haircut, probably for him. Oh, that was you I think I talked about this with. He did. Uh, right. uh, Craig Talman was the music director there. I think he was, my mother was a Hebrew school uh, principal and Craig Talman was actually teaching music uh, at the Hebrew school she ran. And in the summers, he taught music at Camp Ramah. Yeah. He's probably in his mid-20s yeah. then. Dating ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Wow. That's the way it goes. Nace, tell us a little bit more about yourself. You know, you're a mensch from the Jewish community here in Los Angeles. Uh, you've got a lot of overlapping circles with, I'm sure, a number of our listeners. You know, how'd you make it to who you are today? Um, well, I appreciate being called a mensch. You know, it's something that's important to me is we live a certain way and oftentimes we get attached to something that we did, not who we are, you know, and as at, at times we, we behave poorly as humans and we we can always grow better, but um, I have an interesting journey. I ended up in LA. I thought I would never live in LA, and I uh, was in the food business for years uh, after college up in Santa Barbara, and my life took a little bit of a left turn. I ended up coming down to LA to get sober in 2004. I got sober at a Jewish faith-based treatment center on Venice Boulevard called Beit Shuva. Many people are familiar with it. It's a pretty special and amazing place. And got involved with building up a catering company from there. And there's there's many spots on the way from A to Z, from B to C to D and along the way. But uh, we now exist as kind of one of the premier catering and special event production companies in California and really all over the country at this point. Uh, but that story is how I met my ex-wife. Um, it's where I met my ex-wife. Uh, she was the cantor at the treatment center. And we got married. And we got unmarried. Um, you know, it's, it's the short version of the Good story. Way of saying it, I like that. Some um, people say uncoupled, unmarried. Uh, you know, they people use the term conscious uncoupling. It was pretty conscious. Um, <laughs> you know, I would definitely say on, on my part it was conscious. Everyone I, I is very aware. Believe uh, on hers as well. Um, I, you know, I could share with you in in great detail how it came to be, but I think you know it's as. As a Jew, you know, a yeah. Jew that went to Camp Ramah with Jewish parents and, yeah. Yeah. you know, fairly, fairly involved in the community parents. I think there's so much taboo around, around divorce um, and, and honestly addiction and alcoholism as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd already checked one of the boxes has been pretty open about addiction and, and alcoholism. And I think, you know, my rabbi at the time for many years, uh, Rabbi Mark Barbitz, who was one of Ed's, Ed Feinstein's kids, um, for lack of better words, you know, we, we spoke a lot we, about it. We, we had coffee every morning for many years, and we, so many times as Jews, were attached to the script of the way we're supposed to live, the way that our parents lived, the way that their parents lived, and the way you're supposed to behave. And the words, the phrase supposed to, exists so often. And in reality, that's really inauthentic. Um, I was very, very attached to what my life was supposed to look like. 
when I grew up. Yeah, you know, I was 16. I was supposed to have a dog and a half, 2.3 kids, live in the suburbs, maybe get a Volvo and a pasta maker by the time I was 40. <laughs> and my life didn't look like that. I'd been a left turn. I'd ended up in treatment. You know, I'd, I'd, none of that stuff existed. And I think the same thing occurs oftentimes in, in our relationships. You know, we don't get divorced. It's supposed to look like this. We're Jews. We sweep things under the rug uh, versus being willing to emote and share our emotions and be honest and, and open about the way we're really experiencing and feeling things in life. So I got attached to this. I got attached to the script and I continued to buy the old script that I was uh, supposed to live a certain way. And uh, I, uh, a couple of years into a marriage, I just, I didn't want to be married. I, say nothing poorly about any other human, but it was not my cup of tea, I think is probably the most uh, kind way of saying that the woman I had married was just no longer my cup of tea. Realistically, probably wasn't my cup of tea by the time I got married and I was scared. I was petrified. I was petrified of what even a breakup or a divorce or anything might look like. And the reality is I behaved poorly. I ended up having an affair. I didn't speak to her about it and I uh, didn't talk to her about it even through the divorce process. And, you know, peacefully went on my way and eventually met a woman who had been married previously as well. And we quickly fell in love. And as you shared, oftentimes the second time you've kind of figured it all out and know everything. And, um, I thought I knew everything and my second wife thought she knew everything too, as she'd been previously married. And we quickly realized that we didn't know everything and made a decision to no longer stay married. And somehow the woman I was married to the first time decided to track her down uh, via some sort of social media or it was LinkedIn or something like that. They decided to go out and have some cocktails on New oh, Year's man. Eve. Oh and, my gosh, um, this is a movie. On that one, yeah. You. yeah, you couldn't write this stuff for a movie if you tried. Uh, <laughs> I, think so I never heard did. this story. I think it was with Cameron Diaz. And- yeah, yeah the, the girls end up teaming up. Media. So yeah, they, uh, they end up going to get they get drunk together, and um, <laughs> and are you sober at this point? Yes. I, I've been I've been sober already. Yeah. I got married and divorced in sobriety, and and it's part of my recovery journey. So all of this has happened uh, since I've come to LA, and the my first wife found out about what had happened because I had brought honesty and just the integrity to the second relationship I was in, and I made a commitment to myself and to my community and really the world is that's how I was going to behave. I again, as my rabbi had shared, he's like, you you did a bad thing. You're not a bad guy. You know, and uh, at that point, uh, my first ex-wife, uh, I think the best words, the best way to describe it is to say she went ballistic. Uh, it started with phone calls to the office, um, just slandering, libel accusations, uh, phone calls to my rabbi, to my best friend and business partner at the time, my parents, uh, really anybody who knew me, uh, publicly posting on Facebook and other social media channels creating dummy accounts, uh, slamming my business on Yelp, um, really anything she could possibly do to go after me as a human. Um, it was, it was pretty bad. Um, Q1 2016 was probably one of the most difficult emotional times of my life. And, you know, I had a lot of females, uh, that are friends of mine over the years and colleagues reached out to me and they said, wow, you know, like nobody deserves this no matter what you did. I mean, nobody deserves this. Nobody deserves to be treated this way. And, you know, really my response was, you know, I behaved poorly. I deserve it. And they're like, well, you know, you deserve to be called out on it, I guess, but nobody deserves to be treated this way. I mean, it took countless dollars with Yelp legal. Uh, the funny thing is when she had called my parents and my rabbi, they all knew like, yeah, we know, 
you know, Nace has been open and honest with us about it, and he's struggling emotionally about his behavior. And um, it it took a while. It took a while for the dust to settle. Um, I would say that every female that I've ever dated, every woman I've ever dated, uh, since since that moment, uh, my ex has reached out to them or found them somehow somehow on social media, and given them some sort of manifesto warning about what a bad guy I am. And uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty spectacular. Um, it's pretty spectacular. I, uh, to this moment, I won't say anything poorly about her. It's not my place to do that. It, you know, I'll continue to say it's not my cup of tea. Sure. Um, I have plenty of other opinions, and off the record, if you want to speak to me about them, I'm more than happy to share. Well, we don't need to share those right now. I, I do have a shared couple quite questions. a bit. That's that's. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff you hear about, but to actually know someone who's gone through this, like right. that's, gets ugly. It can get very, very ugly. Yeah. yeah. The reality is we're humans. We're humans first before anything else. We, we feel and we have emotions. And, you know, I got to go through a rainbow of emotions in that process. I'd like to know what your healing journey was through that. Like, how did you, because I, we talk about this a lot where, you know, Noam will tell me that he's working with men. And I'm like, who are these men that are seeking out help and going to divorce coaches? Because I don't know very many men who really focus on that personal growth. But you had to have worked on yourself to get past all of that. And what did you do? Was it therapy? Like, how did you really? Yeah, it was a combination. So as I shared, I've been sober for many years and the, the journey of recovery for me has always been a spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. That's a journey of introspection. It's a journey of, of recovering as a human, less to do about drugs and alcohol, uh, more to deal with the spiritual malady and emotional recovery. And, and the, same, the same tools apply to processing through an experience like this. It was... Difficult at first, you know, at first it was remembering that I, I did a bad thing. Not I'm, I'm not a bad human overall. I would say that 99.9% of my life I live pretty clean and, and with honesty and integrity. Um, and first becoming attached to that, remembering that that's my truth. Um, and also embracing this truth, you know, uh, getting to sit here today with you two and, and share this story is part of the healing journey still to this moment. Um, you know, I get to have a living amends and, and behave differently moving forward, you know, and not conduct that behavior anymore. Um, and a lot of the healing journey came from the love from the outside community. Just people telling me that, you know, Hey, you're a good human. We know you as a human. This is something you did. And I, I've shared that a couple of times, but that's really, really what happened. I, I cannot take back the experience somebody had. Uh, and I know I can't undo it. There's, uh, I went through an amends process there and the response I was met with honestly was her yelling and screaming her chicken, like a head cut with chicken, like a chicken with her head cut off through the parking lot of the Starbucks at Havenhurst and Ventura, you know, uh, yelling that this man's a cheater and she's literally running through the parking lot like a crazy woman, you know, and, uh, I, I can't control the way somebody else behaves. What I can do is control my behavior. I've spent a lot of time with a therapist. I've always believed in, in the, in the therapy journey, even when things are good, not when things are bad, mm-hmm. uh, the deeper understanding we have of self and self-introspection and, and the work that lies within that. Uh, you know, I read a lot, or not as much anymore, as much as I'd like to. Um, let, let, let me ask you a question about that then. So how long were you sober before you got married? Uh, we started dating when I was about three, four years sober. We got married when I was about six years sober. Okay, and did the... Did the divorce in and of itself, right? Did the dissolution of your marriage, all that stuff, the unmarriedness of it all, did that ever push you to say, I need a drink? Uh, you know, it's funny you ask that. I, 
my mother, we were at Shabbat services at Beit Shuva. We used to go there on Friday nights and we were in the middle of all this craziness. I, I remember we were waiting for our cars at the valet and she turned to me and she said, you know, you know, what's amazing. Has it ever crossed your mind to go have a drink or use because of how much you've had to deal with recently? <clears throat> and it's actually the opposite. It's actually it, it, the, it's the last thing on my mind. You know, personally, I think if I, the laser focus and the clarity that comes, you know, with sobriety for me has actually allowed me to navigate through the, this process, both right. emotionally right. Uh, and, and physically, right. you know, to be honest. So it never really crossed my mind. So th that's actually a really important question. And also, I really very much appreciate you saying this. I'm curious to know maybe what prevented it from crossing your mind. I imagine it was inner work that you did or some other distracting process or whatever it is. Let me get to that. My point is to say that one of the main things I advocate for guys to do when they go through divorce and experience the trauma and the grief related to it, particularly if it was something they didn't want to happen, right? Um, and there are a lot of guys out there who feel blindsided about divorce. So I argue for a lot of self-care, right? You're going to want to rush into a relationship because it feels good. There's a lot of healing in that. You feel worth. You might want to spend more time alone. You might want to focus on self and self-care. And at the very least, find yourself a therapist and also have a friend who you feel like you can bear your soul to, who's going to be really just kind of like open and not judgmental and support you and just say, whatever you need, brother, I'm there. I'm your brother in arms in this process. Uh, and especially I argue for this sort of thing because it's better than the other forms of self-care that I think a lot of people you know, take on when going through a difficult transition and stressed and upset or afraid or whatever, but particularly guys, which is to use substance abuse as a form mm -hmm. of self-medication, right? I advocate for um, antidepressants. I'm on antidepressants, right? I was on anti-anxiety meds for a certain while as well. They were miraculous and helped me sort out any number of different things. Um, but my point is to say, how did you get to that point of saying, I don't need the alcohol to self-medicate and to care for myself, to go into those habits, which might have been ingrained at an earlier point, but also, right, so how did you not get there, right, and what did you have as a practice that um, just helped you stay healthy during that time? I think a deep connection with a higher power, prayer and meditation. And for me, that's the core of recovery. Uh, I, I, I'm one of the many subscribers that believes that alcoholism and addiction uh, has nothing to do with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol are the solution, uh, not the problem. You know, as an alcoholic, I got two options. I can either drink or I can be in a spiritual solution, which means I don't have to have a drink today. So because of that, it's not so much I lean on something of substance, you know, or, or not lean on it. It's... It's the way I've always viewed 12-step recovery to be a journey. And, and again, and how I view the disease of alcoholism and addiction, as, as many do, you know, it's, it's it, the, problems, the problems inside of me. The problem's not the drugs or the alcohol. And just like I, I can misbehave with drugs and alcohol or, you know, lean on that as a solution for my spiritual malady, I can do it with anything. I can shop it. I can drive cars. I can race bikes. You name it. I can find a million different things that will be the output to allow me not to feel and lean in authentically to what I'm experiencing emotionally as a human. So the journey for me was really simple. The same tools that applied to stay, for lack of a better word, sane, applied here. And the, the application of those principles and that way of living is what, what kept me calm, kept me sane, kept me healthy, um, you know, again, with community.
Amazing. I I was thinking about you were talking about mostly men, but like the the wine culture for women is big, you know, especially during COVID and the pandemic. And all, it was like, what time is it? Wine o'clock? How early can we start drinking? It became so acceptable, right? And I I think that it's really like I mean I I started drinking definitely a lot more when um, I was going through the beginning stages of the divorce and realizing. Kind of that that's the worst thing you could be doing when you have to be clear-headed, like you said, and it affects your sleep and all those things. And I think that's another big thing when I'm working with clients is like part of the self-care, like being healthy. Like, are you drinking every single night? You probably shouldn't do that. Like, it's going to affect the way you process everything. And we have to make some big decisions right now. Um, so. You know, there's an interesting experience that I've, I've always been attached to in this process, which is, wow, this is so difficult, so horrible. I, I have to feel everything because I, I don't get to numb it with drugs or alcohol. But you know what's also true is it's so amazing and such a beautiful blessing that I get to feel everything. Mm-hmm. And the value of getting to feel everything supersedes that of having to feel everything all the time. The only time I regret that decision was when I thought I did not need an epidural because <laughs> I wanted to feel it. Oh gosh! Very quickly with it, like I'm not feeling that shit. Second kid, I don't, know what. <laughs> I don't need to feel this. <laughs> I, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, the the gift of getting to feel every emotion yeah. and go through a rainbow of emotions on each day. So I'm gonna get to that. And one thing I usually that that always bothered my therapist is I would say things that like I feel emotions very deeply, and at times I really don't want to. I want to be much more like Spock in the sense that like they bubble up and I go, "Ooh, that's interesting," mm-hmm. right? And then like I let it pass. Like, it doesn't phase me whatsoever. So there are times I just wish it didn't, like, reverberate within me so much. But you also just brought up another, I think, really wonderful point, which strikes on, I think, very much the way we see men uh, going through processes like this, or at least, again, the grief and the trauma of divorce, um, which is the feeling of feelings. Um, You know, you talked before about how marriage and the relationships that you're in can be just like this blindly inherited kind of structure that you think works for yourself and you realize it doesn't, or the person doesn't, whatever it is, you've mm-hmm. taken it in silently. Uh, men do a lot of those things too, a lot with emotions as well, right? They see their fathers or other men go through experiences and they see them remain stoic, right? A lot like Spock in that way, that they're not like responding to it. Um, I remember seeing Obama cry, this without political, political-ness to it, saw Obama cry when he was talking about Newtown when he read the public address, and I thought that was a really wonderful stance as a leader to actually shed a tear in front of the nation. And I'm sure there were plenty of other people who were like, forget that, that seemed weak. At the same time, men have a very difficult time articulating emotionally what they're going through in divorce. And I'm curious to know, from your perspective, what helped you, what helped you experience those feelings that you were having, the rainbow of emotions, and to not get overwhelmed by it, Right, and then to process it and share it in a healthy way. Uh, I think it's very much attached to the, the tool set, for lack of better words, that came with my recovery journey. Uh, I had a therapist early in recovery uh, that said something. You know, two things to me that were really, really stuck. Uh, the first was, "Nace, all you have to do every day is your best, no more, no less." It's really that simple. And it's and you have to tell people what you need and you have to ask for what you want. And you're not always going to get either one, but you don't have a chance without either one of those things. And, uh, you know, for me, I was, was taught early on that asking for help is, a, is a, a signal of strength, you know. And at the end of the day, it 
doesn't really matter what anybody else's opinion, whether they view you as strong or weak is really no one's business, but theirs. Tying it back in again, I got sober at a kind of a Jewish faith-based treatment center and you know, there's so much judgment, right? And this all started, right? Because I was afraid of being judged by my parents, you know, is how I got into the predicament that I was in. But I was proposed the question, who is qualified to judge? What human is qualified to judge you? And the answer is no one but you or God, you know? And the moment, the moment I get detached from that is when I get in trouble, you know? And, and you had asked, you know, what, what, what allowed me to navigate through it? It was, the, the tools were baked in. It was a way of living already. Um, it, it was an emotional way of living that it, it's, I can experience every emotion. I can have an emotion, recognize that I'm having a feeling. Don't discount the existence of that feeling. Allow myself to feel it, process it, then come back and say, okay, I'm having this feeling. This is how I connect with it. What am I going to do with this information now? How am I going to behave? How am I going to bring an output back to the world in relation to that feeling? And it is, I, again, I, it just as much as divorce or alcoholism and Judaism, you know, feelings and emotions are taboo for males. Uh, we're all human. Um, sure, as a trend, perhaps females do or don't have more or less emotions. I, I'm surely not a specialist in that area, but at the end of the day, we're all humans and we all have feelings. Amen. Amen. Wow. Um, so I have a question for you about dating because I think a lot of, I don't know if, the, I think a lot of Jews are in the same the same boat of like checking off boxes you want someone jewish or whatever it is and i you know i married the person that i thought had all the things that i needed or wanted um but now after i mean clearly we know your first wife the cantor is jewish was your second wife also jewish was not was not so at now after Two divorces, getting out there. Did you get right back out there? Did you focus on online dating or did you, did your preferences change? Did you have a little bit of a, like, were you wanting to be single for a while or did you jump right in? Like, I'm just curious what your journey was going into uh, life after the two. Be present in the moment. It does not matter what anybody else thinks. I mean, if I stay attached to that, that if I'm going out to whether it be to find a partner in a relationship or the way I experience it and started dating again, you know, I was, I was crystal clear, you know, that I didn't know at the time. I remember my mother, my mother telling me, she said, you know, Nathaniel, which is my full name. She goes, you should just go out and date for a while. Sow your oats, go on cheap dates. And I'm like, mom, I don't live like that. It's not going to work for me. She goes, you know, you go on cheap dates. You can go to dinner and movies. I said, mom, going to dinner and movies, 200 bucks. And I don't want to eat lousy food, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's just the reality. Like I've been a chef for a long time. I'm in the food business. I'm like, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to go on a date, I'm going to go on a date that I'm going to enjoy. And with someone um, who also appreciates and enjoys. Um, that's been my experience very recently. And it's very much something that brings my, my current partner and I together, like my, my current girlfriend and I very much connect over food and that experience. It's Our love food. language is food. Um, it works. Let me tell you. But that's, that is the, <laughs> when I look back at what I did, uh, I made a decision that, I, you know, and I, I live fairly outwardly. Um, the first lesson I learned was, was from my little sister. I said, you know, I was going on a date and she said, you want a date? Cool. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pick up. She's like, you're not picking anybody up. They're going to think you're an ax murderer if you're going to pick somebody up. And I'm like, you go on a date with somebody. You ask them on a date. You you pick them up. You, you offer to buy dinner. We grew up, I grew up in a fairly egalitarian home. Like, if you want to pay for dinner, that's very okay. Um, 
She said, yeah, dating's not like that anymore. You know, you got to meet at a coffee shop during the day. And, and my sister said something really interesting to me. She said, uh, you know, meet at a coffee shop and do it during the day because if you want to get out of there in 15 minutes, you can get out of there in 15 minutes. And I said, what? Why? I didn't understand. I said, uh, you <laughs> know, I'm, I want to spend more than 15 minutes with someone. Hmm. I mean, I and I, I, I love humans. I love people in general. Um, I'm in a very social business, as, as it were. And, and I said, look, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to get to meet some cool humans and whether or not I end up in a relationship with one of them or not, like there's, there's plenty of good people on the planet. I'm going to go to a restaurant that I want to eat at, assuming that it's something where that they're interested in, want to go to it. I'm going to have a nice dinner and have a nice evening. And, and that's okay. You know, and if I never see the person again, I never see the person again. And we can be honest, you know, and I, I don't think I can't remember. And perhaps I have like the idea of ghosting that you hear about in dating, like it's pretty easy just to say, Hey, this isn't for me. Yeah. You know, there's, there's 7 billion people on this planet. There's maybe somebody else, you know, and it's pretty easy to treat other humans with dignity and respect that way. When you say it like that, you got to wonder why more people aren't capable of it. I mean, what's the worst? I've been ghosted. Happen? It's the craziest thing ever. It's terrible. I, I went all Jewish mother and was like, are you okay? I like, I didn't even think that I was being ghosted. I thought something literally happened to him and I was all worried about it. <laughs> and then finally my friend was like, Girl, he's not getting back to you. He's he's ghosting you. I was like, why? It was he just was done. A good way to learn that sometimes people are really bad with communication. Yeah, and that you know it's on them in that way. You know, you see a couple of those memes. Just that pussies. Sorry. Go ahead. There's that as well. Not just pussies. Explicit box. <laughs> That's it. They're just pussies. Publish on Powered Bean. Remember that, Craig. We have to mark the explicit box now. Um, you know, you see some of those memes going around about people ghosting and, and disappearing. And I just, it's, it's unfathomable that it really, people just don't have the wherewithal just to say, Hey, this isn't for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? I mean, even in general, even if you, you would ask the question earlier, know about, you know, what's dating like now, again, back to what my therapist said, you know, you got to ask for what you want and tell somebody what you need. Like, do you want to go have a cup of coffee? No. Okay. Like, and just no life goes on. Right. You know? So, Okay. You've done a lot of different catering events, mm -hmm. right? You don't need to go into the specific list, right? But you've done some really big time and important catering events. Have you ever done a divorce party? Actually, we have. Really? Uh, actually, before I was divorced, we had a client many, many years ago, my early days with the company, and we... We catered his wedding, we catered his divorce party, and we catered his next wedding. He was a great <laughs> client. Have you done, what? have you had experience with a uh, bar mitzvah or wedding or wait, yeah. wait, hold, wait, hold you're on. not done with this question. What kind of menu goes into the divorce party? Because <laughs> I look again, this whole food porn era that we're in, whether it's on TikTok or TV, right? Between the bear, right? And talking about how food is like the ultimate experience. It makes your life and all that, you know, come on. I apologize. My point is to say, right? If food is a reflection of the experience or meant to induce some type of experience, right, or enhance the experience, right, what kind of food are you serving at a divorce party that enhances that experience? You know, I think the divorce party was probably most comparable to a bar mitzvah. Oh, geez. They the lifting him up on a chair. Oh, you're gonna say a bachelor party? You know, is there a no, ceremony. The client we had treated it like a, a celebration. You know, a life cycle moment of celebrating something. 
I think there was as much celebrating that happened at the actually remembering mm-hmm. his first wedding, there was as much celebrating that happened at the divorce party as there was. No kidding. At the wedding. So it's celebratory wow. moments, you know, it's it's food the food was gosh, I can't remember now. We probably cater five hundred, a thousand events a year. It was fifteen years ago. Um but it was uh it was a cocktail party. The guy had a home at the top of Moholland, you know, kind of overlooked the whole valley. Nice. Kind of one of those real, real nice homes that nice. uh, kind of threw that classic Hollywood Hills rager. Um, I'm pretty sure his... You're saying there were grape leaves there. No, I mean, his ex came. His ex came to the divorce party, showed up, and it wasn't weird. I said grape leaves. Oh. What did you think I said? Ex? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's Okay. But I'm glad that his ex was there. That's very interesting. That's very it was, interesting. It was, was, there, was it thrown for her too, or was no. it his divorce party? It was his divorce party. I think they were both happy that he was done. I think he made it out of the I don't know. This is details. so interesting. Wow. He made it out of the marriage, like un, unscathed financially, as it were. You know, I think uh, he's wow. a fairly wealthy individual and. And, uh, very you know, mature divorce party. A couple yeah. years later, I got an email. He's like, hey, I'm getting married again. You did a great job with my wedding. And that, gosh, that party we threw at Hollywood <laughs> Hills was fun, you know? like The only consistent thing in his life was your catering, was your time, food. Brother. I, I know, you know, it's funny. I think it was like the same photographer. and like the Oh, same my God, that's so florist. funny. Well, when you know, like, if you're not, why reinvent the wheel, right? If they it's, just change the person, it's not like it's the florist reason why you got divorced, right? <laughs> they oh were, God, that's hilarious. I got it. I know what it was. It was the fucking photographer. That's the reason why we're divorced now. So funny. I bet, I bet you've had experiences, though, as, as an event planner that's done events as well, where you work with a couple and you're working very intimately and they're not getting on. You're probably, and have you had those moments of like, like uh, working on a wedding, you're like, oh, I don't know if these guys are going to make it. Oh, that's really good. I've definitely had those moments as a rabbi. Oh, yeah. Like right before I walk down the aisle or they walk down the aisle, I'm like, oh, you see no. how they You see how they can't agree or the, where they, or the, how the you know, stress affects them. And, you're, been, and I've had moments of like, good luck, guys. There's been more than one wedding it. where the, I've seen the couple fight before they walk down the aisle and it's ugly, right? It's not like knock down, drag out anything, go to your separate corners type of thing, but. Um, it's and it's a stressful moment, like you say, mm-hmm. but you, you do give a moment of wonder. They're like, really? I mean, I know three wedding planners that were clients of mine, like more of a business to business that brought us a lot of clients over the years. I know three wedding planners of the many, many that we work with that are now MFTs and are no longer in the wedding industry. Uh, they've <laughs> yeah. moved to the direction and now of MFTs. I love it. You know, we are too. As a, as a caterer, you don't see it, but I, I, you know, you do get to know, especially the foodie couples, and you spend time with them and. Uh, you do learn some of those tools that a therapist would use to kind of navigate through that. And it's oftentimes not the couple, but it's oftentimes the mother of one of the couples oh, sure. that has an opinion. That's the reason they're going to end up getting a divorce. She's going to ruin it. Uh, the mother-in-law. The, ma- the mom gets involved. <laughs> the mother-in-law. It's, well, it's funny that you bring that up. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. My grandmother had an expression, which she used to say in Yiddish. Uh, and my sisters uh, would probably remember this is, I know, I know Michal definitely would. Um, but it's uh, when two sleep on one pillow, a third doesn't interfere, right? So that like you're not supposed to be, right? There's a couple that's intimate. I always mm-hmm. like to play on numbers: two on one pillow, a third doesn't interfere. And the idea that like that's a married couple, you got to leave them to work out their own shit, right? So like you as the mother-in-law shouldn't be poking around in some way. Oh, which of course was a philosophy of my grandmother. Oh, your grand, yeah. Right? But like for her, it was like a real personal thing. I, mean, I think so much I, uh, the mother's influence, outside influence. I mean, uh, circling back to like how perhaps many of us ended up as divorced. I mean, how much did we 
How much did we subscribe to what the outside influence wanted to us, which got us there in the first place? If we were really authentically able to be honest with self when making those decisions, would I have married? So, well, it's also so funny, too, because I don't think a lot of us, you think about when people get married, right? Like in their 20s, you don't know shit about yourself. There's no way. And I'm sure if you did a reflection, if you, Liron, did one, if I did one, right? Like if any of us did one post-divorce, we'd realize that we were completely different people oh, yeah. post-divorce than we were when we got married. And it, that's got very, like some of that has to do with divorce, but other it just has to do with living life. With growth. And right. it's like, you look at this person going, if we met now, would we even like each other? Right. You know, we're, yeah. Which is why, you know, it's also interesting. Like I wonder about the divorces that are so acerbic, right? Post the whole separation and why they just can't get along. And I wonder if some of it has to do with the fact that maybe they were never really friends to begin with. Like mm -hmm. if you don't have that language and all you come in with is like this lustful attitude, right? And this fantasy idea of getting married and then that all goes to shit, right? Then you're like, oh, fuck, you got all this resentment about it. But you also don't have a foundation of friendship by which you can say like, oh, I see that person as being more than just this experience. Right? This is someone that came into my life at a different period of time for something different. And I can see them in a whole different light. Yeah. One of the questions that was asked to me of the therapist, uh, you know, I was going through the divorce uh, uh, therapist she asked me she said so did you ever did you ever really love your ex-wife or you know your relationship like how immersed in the relationship were you, or were you more attracted to the idea of the relationship so if you were to look at the relationship quote unquote on paper i know the young businessman the cantor and the list and we you know we live here and our parents are friends and this and that and everything looks great on paper and and so much of life you know not just in, in the realm of divorce you know so much it looks good from the outside but you know really Really, where do we lean in? And really, where are we authentic in how we actually experience life as humans? You know, and, and you know, if I look back and right, twenty twenty is hindsight. You know, I was attached to the idea, and I like, I, I can lie, I could experience the beginning dating that woman. You know, and um, but the moment where where did I not? The moment I didn't feel connected or feel like I wanted to go down the path of having this person as a life partner, life partner, did I not just speak up and say, hey, you know what? This isn't for me, you know, and there's no reasons. We don't need to justify that. We're allowed to do that as humans in life. I remember my business partner asked me at the time, my best friend, he goes, you know, sometimes in life we make a decision and we go back, we realize we need to make a different decision. It's really that simple. Well, I, I'm uh, speaking of simple, I'm, I'm guessing this next answer is going to be pretty simple for you. I, I know that I, there's a certain reluctance I have about finding another deep and committed relationship for as much as I very much want one. I do also fear that it could also end in divorce, right? No matter how much I work on it, how much I work on myself, it just isn't the way it's supposed to go. Um, and so I fear like even the idea of getting divorced a second time. There's a certain amount of shame in that for me as well. I'm wondering, it's imagined shame, of course, because I'm not in that scenario. But I'm curious for you, how did you handle that idea of saying, I got married once and got divorced. All right, fine. It didn't work out. It wasn't the greatest of choices, right? We weren't the right match. But then it happening again and then going through it. And I'm curious to know if shame was ever really a part of that. Um, Does it get easier the second time around right. to do it? I don't think shame's <laughs> right. We were actually only married for six months, and it was a very loving experience. We actually walked into the courthouse holding hands, crying together. Um, you know, six months in, we had no real property yeah, together. It's a dissolution of marriage. It's essentially a, a dissolution of marriage. We actually stayed living together for two months and finished out the lease on a place that we had rented at right. the time. Um, our relationship got amazingly better uh, after we got divorced. Right. Um, <laughs> that two months was from October to December before they just, that one went cocktailing with the first one. Um, then things changed a little bit. 
Um, I, you know, people are always so concerned too with, you know, government and social media and how everybody's going to see everything they're doing. It's really simple. I just kind of believe in life. Like, why don't you just live in a way that it doesn't matter? It just doesn't matter. Like what you do, how you can, if you conduct yourself well in life, then there's nothing to hide. You know, if you live and, and go to sleep really well at night with how you behaved and conducted yourself that day, it doesn't matter who's going to see or get your information on social media. It doesn't matter what your ex or somebody is going to think of you. I, it's just, it's none of my business. You know, my business is that I woke up today and I, I, brought, I gave more to the world than I took from the world and I did the best that I could. That's all my business. If everyone could live that way, really that would like relieve that, so actually. much stress. Yeah. I'd learn to not give yeah. a shit. Well, it's also, you know, I, I, what I've appreciated about what you've been sharing, Nace, is this very much, um, I am not in control of my life. I am very much in control of myself, approach to things. Uh, and there's nothing to be judgmental about yourself when it comes to things like that, right? You make the decisions that are best for your life. and Nobody can tell you one way or another. True. And, and, you know, the reality is, as I navigated through that process, I tried to make some decisions that I thought would be best for my ex's life, um, you know, and the, and the level of honesty I had at the time. And, and that, you know, I, I did it wrong. You know, I was wrong. I, and I said I was, I went to an amends and I said, I'm sorry. Sorry that I wasn't more forthright and honest with you at the time. I don't know how to take back that experience. And, you know, my equipment's never behave that way again. But that's, that's the best I can do. You know, there's... I, a bunch of exclamations aren't going to help anybody at this point other than saying like, yeah, if I ever am presented with this information again in the future, I'm committed to being honest and forthright. That's it. I can do. It's so refreshing to hear from a man that's driven and successful and focused and yet being so vulnerable and open to acknowledging mistakes and areas of growth. I think so many men, not to stereotype, but I think so many men look at that as weakness. Of course they do, but a lot of and us view it as weakness. There are women who also view that as a weakness. Women also, I think women are a little better at admitting when they're wrong. Um, I, <laughs> admitting their I mistakes. I, no, 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 uh, not, not to uh, the man. Hold on a second. Not to the man, to themselves. I, there's a to whole, give themselves grace to forgive themselves. There's a whole line of comedy about women. I know, you're right. After I said mistakes. that, I was like, shit, I set myself up here. But I don't mean admitting they're, they're wrong to their partners. Sure. I mean having more vulnerable kind of moments of reflection. I don't know. I mean, it, in a, well, it's, you're right. So, There's no men and, versus women and, here. And Everyone's different. Ashley used to say in a free society, all some are responsible, some are guilty, all responsible. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, that's the reality. Some are guilty, all are responsible. Yep. And you know, I would, I would one. tell you that, um, it's equal, right? We're all humans first, as I shared. Yeah. You know, women. It's not about who's better or worse than it. In my personal opinion, you know, I know, I know plenty of There's men that are men. Men are worse. There's no question about well, it. We have a lot of these conversations because he works with men and I work with women, right? So we have a lot of interesting. But I think we're going the right direction. As much yeah. as I, I, I wouldn't say that I despise the new youthful generation and their attitude towards the workforce and the working world. And everything. What I will say is very much the new. Oh, you won't say that. <laughs> I will not say that, but I, I will, you know, I'll passively throw it in there. Uh, what, I, what I will say is the, the new youth's willingness to emote and share how they feel and protect their emotions is, is really actually awesome well, to, to watch. Okay, so I'm going to debate you a little bit on that because um, particularly there's a lot of social media that affords them the opportunity to do so. Is that's where we're seeing it a lot. So I have a tendency of wondering about how much of it is really performative uh, and how but much they say it, it to they f your face. 
type of a situation. It's okay, easy but, to but, say it on your but, phone. But even to... in that, but even in that way, I wonder like if there's an oversharing element of it, right? Like, like it's one thing to communicate how you feel to someone, right, about something. It's another thing to like treat it as if this person is also capable of receiving all of it and also handling all of it. Um, and so I, I just wonder about it. I, 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 there's nothing wrong with sharing how you're feeling with someone, right? I think you have to also be particularly skilled at sharing how you're feeling in a way that doesn't become overwhelming and turn the other person into a therapist. Well, I mean, not everyone the... is your therapist. And, they, and, and, well, and let me also add this. I know you're ready to go. Let me add this. The world doesn't necessarily care about how you feel. Okay, I, I just want to throw that out there. Maybe it would be nice if people in the world were a little bit more kinder in that way, right? Or, or, and receptive to that. But by and large, the world is indifferent to those things. And it's not that like nobody should care about emotions because the world is indifferent. But I think if you also think that everyone is concerned about your emotions, you have this particular sense of self-centeredness, which is to say that, like, my experience is the most important of this one now, and I need to articulate that. And you completely forget that there's someone else on the other side of the conversation who's also having an experience and may not be that welled up in it. I apologize. Thank you for letting me step in my soapbox. Nice. <laughs> I mean, what you were just sharing is the essence of that, that well-known item. I would butcher the quote, but the essence of that Maya Angelou quote, you know, is essentially, you know, people won't remember what you say. Do. But they'll, mm -hmm. they'll remember how you made them feel, you know, yep. you take that and you couple it with, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt's, you know, small minds discuss, uh, s small minds discuss people, you know, mediocre minds discuss events and great minds discuss mm -hmm. ideas, you, go. you know, and so many people are attached to what somebody did or who they are or how they behaved, you know, versus conceptually you know talking about how we're going to conduct or behave as humans in the world and how we're going to treat each other um you know and there's some people you know you read Brene brown stuff you know and, and more leaning towards the, the, the female audience you know you read some of the glennon doyle stuff you know and you start to look at like really understanding and I, i've read most of everything Brene brown's written i'm a big subscriber to her belief system and you know you look at how people view the world you know and really just believing that everybody's doing the best that they can give them the benefit of the doubt. And when you do that, it's pretty easy, you know, because no one lets me down. I mean, people, I mean, quote unquote, they can let me down, but what's my part in it? Did I not ask for what I need? Did I not tell somebody what I wanted? You know, did I, did I, did I was I willing to see someone or somebody for who they were or what they are, not what I want them to be? And, and the moment I embrace all of that, it's good. And I, like, I could stand up here and preach on the soapbox all day of everything that I believe in. And I tell you that, you look back at the way I conducted myself today and I probably missed the mark or failed in one of these areas. You know? I don't think anyone expects you to be perfect. What they do expect you to be is mature enough to say, I fucked up and I take responsibility for that. And I can not only um, take responsibility, but I can use this as an opportunity to grow. And mm -hmm. you're, you've demonstrated that in any number of the different things that you've said today, which is, I think, is what's so appealing about what you are saying as well. It's pretty simple. If we don't grow from every experience we have, well, I have it. Right. I mean, that's why I think that's the greatest gift of being human more. That's what separates us from really almost any other species on the planet is that we have the ability to take information and discern the difference between right and wrong and, and do something with that information. But it's also interesting how easy it is to kind of like slip into a, what do you want to call it? A cruise control where you're not thinking about those things. There can be any number of different things, mm -hmm. right? 
There could be an, you know, an on-ramp to that with drugs and alcohol, but it could be any number of other things that simply are a distraction from all these other important ideas. Yeah. I mean, complacency. I mean, I I think at some point we're all guilty of complacency. Um, It's exhausting not being it. You know, we, my organization, uh, we pride ourselves on being, we talk about being a heart-led, you know, a heart-led organization. I believe in heart leadership and uh, we have a lot of openness and vulnerability amongst our leadership team and my company. And, you know, there was a day, I I think uh, a couple months ago, our director of sales came in and she's like, I'm just exhausted. This is emotional. Can we, can we take a step back for like a couple of days? And, we're doing a lot of hard work together as a team, um, as a leadership team. And yeah, it's okay. You know, I mean, relationships take work, you know, and the work in a relationship, uh, the day that a relationship is not work, at least for me, is the day that I don't want to do. I mean, every day I get up and go to work, for lack of better words, and, and trying to improve my relationship, improve communication, make it better. And, you know, some days, uh, my rabbi used to say, some days you move one grain of sand in that area, some days you move the whole fucking sandbox. <laughs> you know, and, but if I move one grain of sand every day, you know, and I, and I do the work, uh, that's the best I can hope for. You know, it's not always going to get the results that I want, but like, that's my part. So inspiring that everything you've learned at Beit Shufa and what you went through and the divorce, divorces has just also seeped into your life and is contributed to your success in your business and how you manage and, and work with the people, you know, who work with you every day. You were saying something about like HR, like it's like their divorce and you said something earlier when we were talking it's, offline. It is, you know, we don't, um, yeah, right, you know, anything you, anything texts or information you say, you know, say less because, uh, oh, that's right. And when it comes to HR or divorce, it could be used against you. Yeah, that um, was good. Is, is very much the truth. I mean, really there's, it's, it's not, you know, so many people are getting so exhausted because they try to quote unquote a certain way at work or try to show up a certain way in their relationship you know and if you just show up as your authentic self mm-hmm. across the board as the same human that's comfortable and you being you whether it be in your relationship with your parents your family your work yep. your colleagues your relationship it's definitely less exhausting you know? well this is why this is why we were calling you the mensch yep. you gotta figure it out I appreciate it. <laughs> it sounds like it, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just winging it. Yep. Yep. Well, you seem to be winging it with a certain uh, wonderful perspective and also a good discipline for life. So, uh, Nace, uh, this has been uh, really a gift for us. Thank you for sharing your time, uh, which is so valuable, and your wisdom, which is even more valuable with us. Uh, you come to us with a lot of experience and wonderful perspective, and you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly a pleasure. All right. Yeah. Um, so friends, don't forget to check us out. Look at the clip that's coming up right now on the YouTube. Send us emails too. If you have any, any yeah. more um, questions or any follow-up emails for NACE, we can forward those along maybe. Yeah, how can people get in touch with you? That's right. I mean, you've got a catering company. Your business is doing well, but, you know, like maybe you need some new clients. How can they get in touch with you? Uh, you know, the name of the company is Contemporary Catering. We've been around for many years. Uh, we're pretty easy to find. If you Google Catering Los Angeles, you look up Contemporary Catering, just call that company. Somebody will know how to find me, I promise you. Wonderful. Awesome. Excellent. Nace, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you. If you're interested in becoming one of our sponsors or have questions and thoughts about the podcast, please email us at thejewishdivorceproject at gmail.com. And you can always find us on social media at The Jewish Divorce Project on Facebook and Instagram. 
And if you'd like to work with me, I specialize in divorce coaching for women. I can be found at mydivorceconcierge.com and on Facebook and Instagram at mydivorceconcierge. And if you're interested in working with me for divorce coaching or spiritual coaching, I work with people of all kinds, of all backgrounds as well. My email address is noamrauscher at gmail.com. That's N-O-A-M-R-A-U-C-H-E-R at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram at noamrauscher.